And so I had a couple different routes. My older brother had the route right on our street, Nello Street, where I grew up. And so uh, that was his. He, he had it. But I, uh, I got a, a, a route on Ted Street, which was adjacent to our street. And then another really sweet route was in a 10-story apartment building on Geneva Street. That was awesome, especially in winter. Just down the hall, down the stairs, you were done, like 50 people in 10 minutes when the paper was small. But um, I want to share about a number of uh, interesting experiences over the course of years of being a newspaper boy, but when I was on, uh, delivering on Ted Street, Ted Street has about 60 homes on it. It runs between Geneva and, and Allen Drive, and I delivered to probably about half, a little bit more than half of them, and towards the Allen Drive end of the street, there was this one house, not a customer of mine, my, customer of mine so I didn't know them, but they had a dog, uh, a great, big, loud, fairly scary-looking German shepherd, a retired police dog is what I had heard, and uh, it, was, it lived in a chain-link dog run kind of beside the house, so when you were on the street, you could see it. But, but it was always, uh, always in the cage, and so though it was loud and a little scary-looking, I didn't think much of it. I, I wasn't worried about it. You'd drive by or walk by, and it would bark lots and make lots of noise, but there was really nothing to worry about. Um, that is until one day, I remember, I was riding my book, bike down Ted Street towards the Allen Drive end of the street, past this house, and, and I heard barking, which was not unusual, but the barking sounded closer, and it was accompanied by the patter of feet, and I looked, and this dog was running at me. Never have I pedaled so fast, so hard, so desperately. I went as hard as I could, but to no avail. This dog's mouth clamped onto my leg, and it dragged me to the ground off my bike. Thankfully, the owner got there quickly. And I suppose, probably, in reflecting back, because it was a police dog, it had learned not to draw too much blood. Because I imagine that could have been far worse than what I experienced. But it was pretty terrifying finding myself in the jaws of this large, scary canine. This morning we return to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're drawing towards the conclusion. And in the text we're looking at today, Jesus issues us a warning. A warning about false prophets who he characterizes as, not as scary German shepherds, but as, a, as ferocious canine of a different kind, he characterizes false prophets as ferocious wolves, and he warns us. In the text we looked at last time we were together in the Sermon on the Mount in around the middle of December, Jesus confronted us with the first of a number of paired alternatives through these last paragraphs. He spoke last time we were together about two gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate, a narrow road and the broad road. This morning, with this warning, Jesus will speak to us about two kinds of trees, two kinds of fruit. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read verse 15 to 20 of Matthew chapter 7. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. 
I want to speak three, three matters in our time together this morning. First, the presence of false teachers. Second, the danger of false, or false prophets. And third, the discernment of false prophets. So the presence of false prophets, the danger of false prophets, and discerning, the discerning of false prophets. Verse 15 begins, our text begins, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. It's, it's an imperative, it's a command. He's, he's saying, heads up, watch out. Pay attention. He, he, he's issuing a warning. One important conclusion that we ought to come to, that we ought to recognize and acknowledge is asserted well by John Stott. He writes this, in telling people to beware of false prophets, Jesus obviously assumed that there were such. He's issuing a warning about something that is a real and present danger. I would contend, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Australia. You can put your hands up if you have. I, I have not ever been to Australia. I have heard that there are warning signs on the side of the highway with kangaroos on them, wildlife crossing kind of signs. We, we're familiar with those here, you know, moose or deer or something else. But, but in Australia, they have them for kangaroos. Now, I can tell you with great deal of confidence that we do not have any beware of kangaroo signs in, in Alberta. I stand to be corrected if you've seen one. But we don't have them because we don't have kangaroos. It's not a real danger. Jesus is issuing a warning. We, we issue warnings when there is a real danger that is faced. And, and Jesus here issues a warning. He says, watch out for false prophets. He, he warns us because of the reality, the presence of false prophets. We see the presence of false prophets a lot through the Old Testament story. In fact, it's one of the great problems God's people faced is the presence of false prophets. And, and then again, in the New Testament, we're warned over and over and over again about false prophets. A quick aside, what exactly is a false prophet? What exactly is prophecy? Uh, perhaps you, like many, when you hear the word prophecy, you immediately think uh, prophecy is about foretelling the future. And no prophecy can include that. Prophecy, strictly speaking, is not about the future. Uh, prophecy is about proclaiming God, something on behalf of God. It is standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord. Okay, prophecy is what I do each Sunday when I preach. This is, biblically speaking, this is prophecy. This is speaking God's word to others. We, we see this in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. They're all enamored with the, the, the gift of speaking in tongues. And here's what he says. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. A little bit later, Paul says here in the same chapter, but in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's saying that when, when people speak God's word, God's truth to others, it encourages them, it builds them up, that that is to be sought and valued in the church. That's what prophecy is. It is speaking for God, God's truth. And so false prophet then 
is anyone who claims to be speaking for God, anyone who claims that they are proclaiming God's truth, but, but in fact are not. Jesus warns us of those who would stand up in his name and say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord, in fact, did not say that. We see this in the Old Testament where we don't, we don't find the exact language, the precise term, false prophets, but we, but we are warned about them throughout. Listen to what, what we read in Jeremiah 14. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. He speaks about those who purport to speak for him but are not. In Ezekiel we read, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among runes. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. Even though the Lord has not sent them, they say the Lord declares and expect him to fulfill their words. Over and over and over again through the Old Testament, we encounter this, where there are those who stand up and speak on behalf of God, claim to speak on behalf of God, who are not doing so. And we see and hear the same warnings throughout the New Testament. This isn't just a problem of back then in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Not only Jesus here, but later on in Matthew's Gospel. Here's what Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Towards the end of Paul's ministry, He meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus and he says this to them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Second Corinthians, Paul says this, to the church, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, in his second epistle writes this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets, false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. I don't know about you, but I read these words and my heart is heavy. Jesus says that there will be false prophets. There will be false teachers. There will be those who purport to speak for God 
who are not. And he warns us. He says, beware. Be careful. Be careful. Pay attention. Watch out for false prophets. Let's turn from the the presence of false prophets to the second thing, the danger of false prophets. Jesus warns us about false prophets because false prophets pose a real threat. They are dangerous. Let's look, look with me at a few details of our text. As we read on verse 15, we read this. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. The imagery is pretty vivid. Wolves are the natural enemy of sheep. Sheep have no defense mechanism. Like sheep can do nothing. They can't run very fast. Bawling at a wolf won't do much. Their wool doesn't provide any kind of defense. That's why Jesus often speaks about the good shepherd who protects the sheep. Sheep can easily fall prey to wolves. So just imagine a wolf or a wolf pack coming down upon some sheep, unprotected. I don't know if you've watched Planet Earth. I don't remember any scenes of wolves attacking sheep. But I remember vividly other scenes of animals attacking, hunting other animals and ripping them to bits. That's the imagery here that Jesus uses. False prophets, false teachers, those who stand up and say, this is what God says when God didn't send them and God didn't say that. He says are ferocious wolves who can devour sheep. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They, they come to you in disguise. That, that, that's significant, isn't it? And sobering. They, they are deceptive. They, they come dressed up. They come looking like sheep. The, in other words, one of the things we need to recognize is that the false prophets that Jesus is warning us about are not people outside of the church who are attacking Christianity. He's not warning us here of people like Christopher Hitchens who wrote The God Delusion, who absolutely ridicules Christians and Christian belief. He's not warning us about those outside the church. He's warning us about individuals in the church who, who look like sheep, who call themselves Christians, who claim to, to speak on behalf of God, but who are speaking lies from their own imaginations. Most people in the church won't fall to an attack by Christopher Hitchens or someone like that launching an assault on Christianity, on Christian faith. Jesus warns about those in the church, those who are dressed up like sheep. There is this this element of deception. See, we we don't see it coming. These false prophets are not easily spotted or recognized. They they come in disguise. They look like Christians. They sound like Christians. They use Christian language. They, they point to parts of the Bible. They attend church. Some pastor churches. Some run ministries and write Christian books. But Jesus says they are predators. They are ferocious wolves. 
John Stott writes this, a false teacher does not announce and advertise himself as a purveyor of lies. On the contrary, he claims to be a teacher of truth. I, I, I don't know what, what feeling, but there is something terribly unsettling about this, is there not? Jesus tells us to watch out, to be on guard, that there are those who will claim to speak on his behalf, who are purveyors of lies, who will come in disguise. And, and, and we, if we're not paying attention, look out. They will take your life. And so that leads us to the third thing that I want to spend some time on, and that is the discernment of false prophets. How is it that we are to recognize those who are false prophets, those of whom Jesus warns us? Well, I want to contend that there are two means that we ought to recognize from this text. The first is the explicit argument that we find in this text. The metaphor Jesus employs shifts from wolves and sheep to trees and fruit. Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. Now, a couple of things we need to recognize is that fruit doesn't happen instantly. You ever watch a fruit tree, try and discern what fruit it has? Right? It, it takes a while. Not immediately visible. Not immediately evident. Not only that, but the reality is sometimes things can look similar uh, from a distance. In fact, in Jesus' day, there was... Uh, a plant called buckthorn that had little blackberries, and from a distance, they could look like grapes. And there was also a thistle, a particular thistle that grew, that from a distance, it looked like it might be figs. And then you got there and realized, oh, no, it's just a flower. And so this isn't necessarily quick or immediately obvious, but Jesus' point is that time will reveal the nature of something. Time will reveal what's going on in the heart of something. Jesus regularly called out the religious leaders as those who were worried about the externals, the appearance, what was going on outside, right? He said, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside it's full of filth. I read that, and I remember an event that happened in our house many years ago. Our boys were young. I don't remember which one of them was, so I'm not pointing a finger at any one of them. It was, it was one of them. Remember when you go to Boston Pizza, you get those little plastic cups with plastic lids, and they're pretty handy. We collected those over the years, and the boys would get their snacks, and they'd get a drink in one of those, and they didn't always make their way back to the kitchen. Well, one particular day, one of them found one that had been evidently sitting in a corner in this little play fort I had built for them when they were little. It had been sitting there for some time, and uh, it had liquid in it, and so this son of mine thought, I wonder what's in it. And so rather than opening it and looking inside, he took a sip and got a mouthful of penicillin probably. <laughs> right? The religious leaders worried about what was outside, but Jesus says it's what's in our hearts that matters. And this fruit test, it, it, Jesus is saying that what's inside will reveal itself. The fruit will be manifested. And through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us what a gospelized life looks like, gospelized character. It begins with poverty of spirit, recognizing that we come to God bankrupt. And we mourn over sin, and 
We aren't always righteous. We sin, we struggle, we fall down and scrape our spiritual needs, but we hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. We hunger and thirst to be rightly related with God and others. And I'm not going to review the whole Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is saying what's in one's heart will be revealed. The, the tree will manifest its true character. And we're hearing that likely brings a great deal of conviction to us. Because each of us, if we're honest, we know that, that we don't measure up. We, we know that we struggle with sinful desires. We struggle and still choose sin. We choose idolatrous things sometimes instead of God and God's way. We, we see that our hearts are bent. That, that at the core, we're not what we want to be. And so we go, well, if, if the, the heart manifests itself, what, what hope is there for me? But I want to say there, there's so much hope because the Sermon on the Mount, where does it begin? It begins with that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that you come to God spiritually bankrupt, that you come with nothing. We do nothing to merit God's love and grace. We do nothing to earn our acceptance with God. We, we come to him recognizing our utter bankruptcy. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we recognize that our hearts are not what they're supposed to be, that is, that is when we know that we are entering into the kingdom. Here Jesus applies this fruit test to the false prophets, false teachers. He says what's inside will manifest itself. Over time, fruit will become evident. That's one means of discerning. The second means of discerning is something we recognize in this text if we look at it within its larger context. This is not speaking about knowing all the answers, about having everything in Scripture figured out, all our T's crossed and I's dotted. I think of the story in, in Acts chapter 18 where Apollos, we read this, he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos, a fellow minister of the gospel like Paul, is preaching and he's teaching. It says he was instructed well, he taught accurately, as we read, and then he runs into Aquila and Priscilla, and they heard him, and they invite him to their home, and Luke tells us, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. So there were things that Apollos didn't have figured out. So he didn't have it all sorted out. He didn't know all the answers. I remember when I went to graduate school, I won't go into all the weeds of how I ended up there, but one of the things that had, had led to me returning to school much earlier than I had anticipated was a theological issue that I encountered in the church where I youth pastored, and I was convinced that they were wrong and moving in an ungodly direction, but I just couldn't articulate it well. And so I wanted to go and, and get more theology, more biblical knowledge so that I'd be able to respond to things like that. And so I went and I studied for three years, and I learned a ton, and I, I loved that experience, and I came out going, there's so much that I don't have figured out. I came here and I thought, man, I really envisioned being in a different place. I thought I'd, I thought I'd know things. And I know a little bit, but just, so th this is not about having all the answers. It's not about having it all figured out. 
I want you to think about Jesus' word of warning here in its context, though, here in the sermon. It is not by accident that it follows verses 13 and 14, the text we looked at back uh, before Christmas. In those verses, Jesus charged us to enter through the narrow gate, to take the narrow road. He said, for, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. In that text, in the verses immediately before what we're looking at here, Jesus has asserted that there is before us a choice to be made, that there are two gates. There is a narrow gate and there is a a wide gate. There are two roads, a narrow road and a wide road. There are two ways. A false prophet or a false teacher will blur that sharp distinction. A false prophet is someone who says, you know, it's not that narrow. It's not, it's not really that hard and demanding. A false prophet is one who will contend that the broad road doesn't really lead to destruction. God loves us all. Sin's not really a big deal. Our identity, you know, we're, we're mostly good people. We might make some mistakes, but sin's not a big deal. God, God just loves you, and God wants you to be self-actualized. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to Look inside and find out who you are and be your true self. Jeremiah 8, we read this. Speaking about false prophets, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah writes later, this is what the Lord Almighty says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace and all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. One of the things we need to ask, whenever we encounter teaching of any kind, from anywhere, including me. Test everything, Jesus says. Test everything. Is is this in line with the narrow path that Jesus calls us to? Or is this more in line with, is this a capitulation of the false ideas of our culture with the broad way? You see, Jesus warns us, this is not only a back then problem, this is, is a now problem. It's a problem today in the church. There are many false teachers. There are many false prophets today. They preach and they teach and they host podcasts and they write books in the name of Jesus. But they are not speaking the truth of Jesus. There are men and women today, I could give you names, who count themselves Christian, 
who argue that the Bible is primarily a human book. Alyssa Childers writes about a movement called progressive Christianity. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. She says this, progressive Christians view the Bible as a record of what people believed about God in the times and places in which they lived, rather than the inspired and authoritative Word of God. Think about that for a moment. The Bible is just a record of people's thoughts and their experience of God. It is not God's truth. It is not His authoritative Word to us. And that means whether those individuals recognize it or not, they have shifted the locus of authority from God and His Word to themselves because they are now the arbiters of what in the Scriptures is true. They might read Scripture. They might teach from the Scriptures, from parts of it. But they are their own authority. They no longer bow their knee before Christ and His Word. (laughs) And in reducing the Bible primarily to a human book has led many to abandon all kinds of Christian doctrines. Many today, increasingly, churches around us, people in the church are abandoning a clear biblical sexual ethic. One Lutheran minister argues that the idea of sex being limited to one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage is is not only incorrect, but it's harmful because it squelches our desires and that inner hunger. And so she actually writes in her book, this is what she writes, she says, whatever sexual flourishing looks like for you, that's what I'd love to see happen in your life. Because it's not what God says about sexuality, it's about what you feel and what you want. And God is loving and kind and compassionate. He would never ask you to endure something hard. He would never ask you to to forsake something that you want to do. Still others are abandoning the linchpin and the Christian doctrine of the atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement is the the doctrine that, that Christ became our substitute, that Christ lived the life of perfect obedience that you and I are called to live and failed to live, and then Christ willingly went to the cross and suffered and bore the wrath of God in our place. And there are increasingly those in the church who characterize that doctrine as cosmic child abuse. They're offended by this thought that God the Father needed blood. He needed His Son to die. They're offended at that. They have this image of an angry God pouring out His wrath and killing His Son. And they say there's no way that that's what it's about. They argue instead something like, well, the cross is just a demonstration of of Jesus' love for me. But let me ask you a question. If you and I are standing next to each other on a sidewalk and your house is on fire and we're just standing there and and I say to you, hey, I'm going to show you how much I love you and I run in and perish in the flames, what would you think? Well, it doesn't make sense. Why did, why did he do that? He was out here with me. But, but if you are trapped in there, and you are about to perish, and I run in there, and I help you get out, and in doing so, I die, you would say, that, that's, that's love. He was my substitute. To call the cross cosmic child abuse 
is a, a massive mischaracterization of it. God the Father loves us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The, the Bible does not tell us God is angry and wrathful and Jesus is loving and compassionate and he came and he, he bore the wrath so that God would... No, God the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son and Jesus the Son willingly submitted to the Father out of love for us. And he willingly went to the cross and he bore the penalty that you and I deserve so that through faith in him we might be redeemed because God is holy and God is just. And so God cannot simply say, hey, don't worry about the sin. I'll just, I'll just ignore it. No, that, that would be to go against his character as a God who is holy and just. And so Christ going to the cross allows God to be both just because sin is punished fully And the justifier who provided a sacrifice in our place that we, through faith, might be redeemed. There is so much teaching going on in the name of Christianity today that avoids the offense of the cross. People may teach some things that are true and orthodox, but they leave out the tough bits. They, they leave out the bits that offend us or offend our culture. The kingdom life, the gospelized life, is life on the narrow road through the narrow gate. And it begins with you and I on our faces before a holy God crying out with the publican of Luke 18, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, his Sermon on the Mount begins in that place where it says, when you're there, when you're on your face before the Father, when you know that you have nothing, yours is the kingdom. that's, That's what the gospel's about. That's where it begins. That is glorious good news. Remember, there there is something subtle and about false teaching. False prophets come in sheep's clothing. But Jesus warns us, they distort the truth. They do not speak for me. So listen, when you hear teaching, ask yourself, does this, is this in line with the gospel? Is this in line with the narrow gate, the narrow road? Is this lead me to the foot of the cross where Christ paid for my sin. Tim Keller writes this. I love this. I've read it before. I'll read it again another time too. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever, ever dared hope. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we encounter when we come and kneel before the cross, before Christ. I want to conclude with this. Truth exists. Jesus warns us of false prophets, those who will purport lies as being from God. Truth exists and truth matters. And truth has a name. 
the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. And we, we don't come to Jesus and negotiate. We come to Jesus and surrender. We kneel before him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And humbly we receive his grace and his mercy. And we submit ourselves to his rule and his word and his authority. We come and kneel and receive life. Receive grace. And we live as citizens of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are hard words. Father, we grieve. We grieve. We grieve for where there are those around us who are being led astray. Those in the church. Father, we pray for your work, Holy Spirit, that you would expose and bring conviction, and bring repentance, and bring a great turning back to you where the church has lost its way. And Father, we pray that you would guide us, that we would live attentively to what we take in as your truth. Protect us, guide us, hold us. Pray this in your name, amen.